I sometimes have said that Europe is characterized by the fact that every country in Europe thinks that the country south of it is lazier and sexier. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, let's talk some more about romanticism. Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay, good. Last time we left off, we were talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and you were talking about his influence on um, inventing hiking, although you mentioned he didn't invent hiking, right? He popularized it. Popularized it uh, as a recreational activity and uh, very influential on people appreciating nature and that whole side of romanticism. But he's also very influential in this other topic of romantic love. And I remember this is coming out on Valentine's Day, this podcast. So we better talk about romantic love. That's on everybody's mind. Yes. You know, we've talked about the history of love before, but just briefly to go back to it, if you look at ancient cultures, particularly ancient Greece and Rome, uh, they really don't make a distinction between love and sex. You fall in love with somebody, that means you want to have sex with them. Uh, if you're suffering from love, it means you can't have sex with them. Um, they would not really make a lot of distinctions in that way. The notion that uh, lovers should be intimate and share feelings with each other and care deeply about each other and be concerned for each other's welfare and so on. Boy, you have to search long and hard before you find much of that in the ancient world. Uh, I would say it's mostly men writing about women from a pretty objectifying point of view, sometimes about other men, too, of course, because there's a lot of uh, writing about eroticism between men, especially in Roman literature. So it's the Middle Ages where this notion in the 12th century of courtly love emerges. And I'm not going to go into great detail about that. It's actually a pretty controversial subject among historians. Uh, but the idea of it being something exalted, almost like a religion where the lover worships the lady um, this is still not the modern idea of love because the woman is still being objectified, only she's on a pillar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's being worshipped and adored sometimes from afar, and there's very little concern for what she's feeling. The man is always talking about how she's making him feel. And uh, one of the things that always amuses me in Italian operas um, where love is concerned uh, the word crudele is extremely common, and it means cruel. And a woman is cruel when she refuses to sleep with a man mm. he's in love with. Um, this idea stems from the medieval concept, where most love poetry is about suffering and the agony of men in particular, because they cannot have their beloved. This was explained by the Romantics in the 19th century as being uh, a sign that they were non-sexual. I talked about this a little bit earlier, that somehow this love was purer, more romantic than, say, the Romans had. 
because it didn't involve sexuality. My approach to it and a lot of other people's is uh, you wrote love poetry and wrote about love when you were frustrated, when you weren't being frustrated and you'd been successful in love. You didn't sit down and write poems about it. You just enjoyed it. So although there are poems celebrating the joys of love, they're far outnumbered. Uh, for a long, long time in European poetry by the suffering, the agony, and so on. Rousseau is the one who really popularizes the sentimental notion of love in his uh, La Nouvelle Héloïse, the new Héloïse. And I talked about that before. Héloïse and Abelard uh, was not a romantic relationship in the Rousseau sense. It was definitely sexual. It had a sort of uh, sadomasochistic side to it. a lot of guilt involved. And the problem with Abelard was that he really wasn't very interested in the inner feelings of Eloise. When she would write him about the agony she was going through being separated from him, he would just tell her to be pious and put it out of her thoughts and so on. So it's not really a romantic relationship in the sense that we have now. So the new Eloise is about a private tutor who has a young, attractive female student that he falls in love with. And it's about their relationship and the agonies that they go through and refraining. Now, Rousseau, unlike some of his libertine contemporaries, wrote very exaltedly of love as a mental and uh, heartfelt state that tried to refrain from overt sexuality. And he really popularizes this notion and analyzing every little feeling, every moment in which your feelings are aroused in relation to the lover and and trying to restrain yourself from hurting them in any way. uh, It became hugely popular. It was clear that Europe was ready for something like this. Clearly, Rousseau didn't invent it. Uh, There are lots of signs that Europeans were already shifting in this direction, but he became the sort of focus. Everybody was reading this book. It was translated into the major languages in Europe. And uh, if you try to read it today, it's almost unbearable. It's, (laughs) It's really not to modern taste at all, but it had an enormous influence at the time. He called his the new Heloise to contrast it with his older model of love. And there's still being tearful and sentimental, a lot of sadness. It's very important. It's worth pointing out also that the fact this is about a tutor is related to another obsession of Rousseau's, which had to do with education, which he wrote a book on education. And his idea, he said, was the ideal educational setting was a tutor on one end of a log and the student on the other. There are two things about that. One, it's very individual, and individualism is extremely important. We're so almost talk about that later. But also it's in nature, sitting on a log, right, not across a table from each other. Um, so the notions that he has have to do with one person's feeling for another person in a very sentimental way. Now, there's been a backlash against sentimentalism in the late 19th century and well into the 20th, and uh, we still have it. And there's a continual combat. You can watch it play itself out on Facebook any day where people will put extremely mawkish sentimental postings and other people make sarcastic remarks about them. And our culture is very much split between these two things. 
The scholarly analysis of the sentimentalism of this period was that it was a false emotion, that people were just entertaining themselves by dredging up uh, feelings which were not rooted in reality and didn't have much to do with what was really going on between people. Uh, and they were just uh, bathing in this sort of warm bath of sentiment. The problem with that to me is that I think there is a mixture. There is a lot of exaggeration. You read almost any romantic novel of the 19th century, you're going to feel, most modern people will feel, this is a bit overstated. It's a bit over the top. On the other hand, the idea that it's all artificial, I think, is a big mistake. Uh, what was happening was the encouragement of something that they called sensibility. And I mentioned this earlier, what we call sensitivity. And the idea was, unlike the rationalists, the people like Voltaire, who said, look at things coldly, rationally, figure out what makes sense and follow that and try to tamp down your emotions. This was explore your emotions, wallow in them, maybe, uh, but enjoy them, uh, celebrate them, glorify them. What makes you human is your emotion. And that often was criticized later in the 19th century by Marxists in particular as being something that glossed over the harsh realities of modern industrialism and the oppression of the working classes and so on and diverted people into a false consciousness. But on the other hand, it could lead in the other direction. There could be this notion that if you become more sensitive to other people's feelings, you might become more sensitive to the sufferings of the poor. And a good example of that would be Charles Dickens. Uh, and he did more than anybody before Marx to bring to the attention of the public the sufferings of the poor. Now, he didn't do it in a Marxist fashion. But there's a lot to be said for trying to share the feelings of other people and letting yourself feel sympathy for others. And I think we've sometimes gone too far in the other direction in the 20th century of rejecting that. And I think the clue to uh, who's winning in this battle between sense and sensibility, as Jane Austen called it, um, is the celebration of weddings. Everybody is uh, trying to create this ideal wedding, and it's much made fun of. And, of course, often these things are catastrophes in the long run. But people generally do want to fall in love. They want to find that one person that their whole heart can be consumed with. It's still an ideal um, we think it's too bad when somebody gets burned out and feels like, well, love is impossible. They'll never find anybody. Um, I think this is a romantic contribution to modern culture that is pretty permanent. It's so pervasive in society. And even though in literature, books that celebrate happy love are rare, uh, we still get rom-com movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think in everyday life, it's still very much a goal. Now, for some people, it's a big problem. They see romance as a delusion. Um, it's often said that the first couple of years, maybe, of a relationship, you can be romantic. And after that, you need to uh, cultivate a more friendly kind of relationship with your partner and so on. I think you can't generalize about these things. And sometimes people go through phases of being more and less romantic over time. And there are plenty of accounts of 
older couples who have been together for many, many years who are still very romantic about each other. So I think there's a longing in human beings to want to think that they have the key, the meaning of life, right? The purpose of existence and to have one thing so they can say, well, I've got that one thing. I've got a true romance and therefore I'm fulfilled. I side with the rationalists in this case by saying, no, there's not just one thing. People vary and are different. Cultures are different. We just watched a documentary last night called Meeting the Patels, which is hilarious. It's about a young man named Patel who was born of immigrants to the United States. And um, he decides after being in a relationship with a non-Indian woman uh, that didn't work out for him to try his parents' route of arranged marriage. And it's very, very entertaining. I highly recommend it. Um, but it shows how he is trying to struggle with what his notions of love are. And his parents said that they only met each other 10 minutes and talked before they decided to get married. And they have a very close relationship. They're very funny and they criticize each other, but they're very romantic and clearly very much in love. And the young man admires that and he can't understand how that can be because he's grown up as an American where first you fall in love, then you marry. And their parents saying, oh, no, much better. Get married, then you fall in love. So it's all about that. And that still exists. I mean, it's not only in India, in a lot of parts of the world, the concept of dating is pretty taboo. So human behavior and human, quote, nature can vary a lot. And I think that applies to individual, too. And it's too bad when people feel, well, I haven't got exactly the kind of relationship that this other person has, and therefore I'm a failure. Um, sometimes things do not work out the way you want them to. And sometimes you have a right to be disappointed. <laughs> and nobody has the right to tell you you have to live with what you've got either. Uh, but there is an awful lot of variation. But the notion of romantic love is still very, very strong in our culture. Well, it goes back to what you were saying. There's no one formula, of course, for attaining happiness in romance. And um, for some people, it's not even the drive to feel romantic and the drive for romance is not even all that strong. However, the drive for love is. And the drive for sex can be extremely long without romance. That's right. So we have all of these things playing in all at one time here. Uh, just to go back a minute, you're talking about romantic novels and the 19th century romantic novels and a certain amount of backlash. Well, it's a little overdone, a little overwrought on the romance side. But it strikes me that what we're really talking about is an art and culture and kind of worldview development when we talk about romanticism. Am I characterizing that sort of correctly? Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that in the evolution of that, um, at some point, the idea that things need to be realistic and that realism is the ideal in artistic expression. And healthy. And healthy. You have to throw that out the window. Um when it comes to romanticism. And it seems to me some of this is a trip inside the mind and exploring inward about what really drives us, what really makes us tick. Because if you step outside and you do the analyses and, and run the tests and so on, uh, it, it may not square exactly with what we're feeling. 
Right. Yeah. Right. And I think it's unfortunate in a way that people often feel too trapped by their exterior definitions. Like, is this really love? And of course, there's often a mismatch with one person feeling quite different from the other. I would say maybe usually. But um, that's something some people come to live with and others are so picky that they wind up frustrated their whole lives because they're trying to find an exact match for feeling the same way they do. So in Meet the Patels, your documentary, how did that end up for him, for the son? Did that work on him? Well, uh, spoiler alert, don't <laughs> listen to this part if you want to be surprised. But after a year of trying an incredible and hilarious variety of ways to meet potential spouses, uh, he winds up going back to his old girlfriend who is not Indian, um, in the movie. Now, I did a little research, and it turns out that didn't last either. Um, but he winds up meeting and falling in love with an Indian woman, another Patel, on his own, without the interference of his parents, falls in love with her and married her last year. And they had a Western marriage, and they're going to have a, a Indian marriage later in the spring. But one of the things about that movie, all the way through, he is unsure about whether he really loves this old girlfriend, and he's not sure what love is. And of course, that's something that gets endlessly agonized over, and that's because we have this concept of true love, that there must be a true kind, and then there are fake kinds. There are certainly people who pretend that they're feeling love when they don't. That would be fake love love is a lie. But in my opinion, people need to be more tolerant of themselves and others in feeling like there are infinite variations on how people feel about each other. And they change all the time from moment to moment, and certainly from individual to individual. And I think it's really unfortunate that we've sometimes fixated on thinking there's just the one true, true love, and that you're missing everything if you haven't got that one. It just reminds me, I was coming back from Seattle on the ferry yesterday, and this guy just came up to me and said, do you want to go to heaven? <laughs> I just waved him off. And I'm thinking, yeah, there's that idea. There's just one point to going to life is follow my particular religious belief. There's only one way to be happy in life. That's to fall in love in the right way. And I just think that's terribly narrow. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's not just in love. Let's see, somebody put it to me once. Um, well, just change your mind about what is beautiful. <laughs> uh, okay, that works more than you might think it would. <laughs> There's a certain amount of tolerance that you might find in yourself if you allow yourself to think that way. Of course, it doesn't work in every instance. <laughs> not everything is beautiful. I saw something interesting, a survey, a study that had been done of people before they were in a serious relationship and what their ideal of attractiveness in the other person was, ideally. Mm -hmm. And the longer they were in the relationship, the more their notion of what attractiveness was like began to match the person they were with. That's a great message for uh, Valentine's Day. Let's put that in our pocket and move on. Okay. You know, when we're talking about different cultures, and last time I mentioned Romeo and Juliet as being sort of a, an escapist fantasy, which was also a cautious warning against 
young, passionate love uh, in Shakespeare's time. People really didn't believe in romantic love as a foundation for marriage, although Shakespeare often celebrates it. But you'll notice that he typically ends those stories right at the wedding, just before the wedding, just after the wedding. You have um, Oberon and Titania being a counterexample where they're not really getting along well at all in the Midsummer Night's Dream. But I was thinking also of the popularity of romantic stories in Asian cultures in Japan, where romantic suicide stories were very, very popular. A couple that were fated not to be able to get together and commit suicide. Still a very popular theme in Japan. Um, and in China, where uh, romantic novels were hugely popular. And in India, where Bollywood is still this huge romance factory. None of these cultures have a lot of, well, Japan has got a dating culture and so on, like more or less like ours, although more limited. But in India, there's not very many people who really participate in that kind of romance in real life, but they love to see it in the movies. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, something that would be a little bit like reading, uh, say, a Wild West novel or a um, exploring the Amazon or something. You know, it's another world that you don't expect to be involved in. You probably wouldn't enjoy if you really were in it, but it's really exciting to witness. That's a real difference between a culture like India, where that's still the main function of romance, and one like America, where it's more integrated into our personal feelings, and we very often feel that we must be on a quest for romantic love. Obviously, romantic love is the thing that's on our minds when we think about romance uh, around Valentine's Day, but there are so many other elements to romanticism. Another big topic in your essay is exoticism, which we touched on earlier, but there's a little more to say about that. Right. I sometimes have said that Europe is characterized by the fact that every country in Europe thinks that the country south of it is lazier and sexier. <laughs> that developed really in the 19th century where you get the French going gaga over hot exotic Spain, particularly in Carmen, which was, of course, a French novel and uh, eventually a French opera. Um, the romantic settings for a lot of writing in the 19th century was not only Spain, but North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and particularly uh, all kinds of absurd notions of women in harems and uh, those adventures and, and lots and lots of paintings of uh, women lounging around in undress in the harems, very unrealistic fashion. And uh, male travelers tended to view the women in other lands as being more sexually desirable and available than the women at home. Mm-hmm. I think that probably was partly just influenced by the fact that they had the money to travel. They were often traveling in places where people were very poor. Um, so they got flirted with perhaps a bit more than uh, they would have just somebody down at the local pub. Mm, yeah, it's the Vietnam War bride phenomenon. But uh, yeah, this is something that it 
helps to create in an odd way in a period in which Europeans are still very much warring with each other. But it does help to create the idea of Europe in that there's a mostly confined to Europe. You do get Orientalism, which we've talked about before on this podcast. But most of it is uh, the romances are between Europeans of different cultures. And I wouldn't say it laid the foundations for the EU, but it does create a mentality that says that just not very far away can be very exotic. Gauguin famously went off to the South Pacific to find his exotic land, but um, Van Gogh uh, just went up to Normandy and found what he thought was terribly exotic, and he distorted the culture quite a bit in his paintings in order to give a notion of these strange, almost mystical foreign lands, which was just a very short distance from Paris, for instance, by our standards, but was a wildly romantic land for him. I think a lot of the interest of Europeans in America after it was originally discovered and in the early stages of settlement were also very motivated by love for the exotic, the notion of the noble savage, which was an 18th century rationalist idea saying, well, these guys have not been spoiled by civilization. That's a very Rousseau-esque notion that was something he made famous, right? And the idea that somehow these natives... Uh, they're always called naked. Now, it's true that some Native American tribes, especially in Central and South America, didn't wear clothes, but uh, they often exaggerated the degree of nakedness, and that appealed to their romantic ideas, which were associated with statuary and painting and, you know, ancient Greece and all of that. There was a counter-narrative which depicted the Native Americans as little more than animals, that they were bestial savages who didn't know how to conduct themselves properly. And those two narratives fight themselves out, especially in the American imagination, all through the 19th century. And there is a tendency then to idealize the Indians at first, then to degrade them, kill them, and then the few that are left can be made safely romantic again. So you get, uh, you know, the Indian at the end of the trail looking out over the cliff with his drooping spear and uh, being sad. Uh, an image is still very much with us and sometimes gets Indians pretty irritated. So exoticism has gotten a bad rap today, and we tend to try to say, well, we should try to understand other cultures as they understand themselves. Um, you know, there's still lots of people who have visions of escaping to a romantic wherever, and travel agents sometimes play that up. Although it's discouraged by educators and progressive thinkers and so on, it's still very much a part of a lot of people's thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this all uh, leads to another huge topic. Well, two other huge topics. We talked a little bit about religion, and we have talked about individualism throughout, but there's much, much more to say, especially about that topic, and it might be best for us to leave that for next time. So let's continue talking about romanticism. I'm not exhausted talking about it. Are you? No. <laughs> Not a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it could go on a while. It's really interesting. So uh, let's wrap it up for this time and say we'll be back next week with more on romanticism. Okay. Talk to you later. 
That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.